Let's be open God's word this morning. Our scripture reading is from Luke chapter 1. We'll read verses 26 through 38, page 1016 and 1017 in your pew Bible, what has been called the Annunciation of the birth of Christ to Mary, Luke 1, read beginning at verse 26. You recall this is just after the announcement to Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth of the birth of John. It says that Elizabeth for five months kept herself hidden. Now in verse 26 it says, in the sixth month, The angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, This is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Rakesha, we just um, sang a moment ago, all mankind fell in Adam's fall when common sin infects them all from sire to son, the bane descends, and over all, the curse impends. In guilt, we draw our infant breath and reap its fruits of woe and death, God's image lost, the darkened soul nor seeks nor finds its heavenly goal. That hymn tells the story of the sin of the first man and woman, how their corruption spread to all mankind, and how we therefore need a savior. The one promised in Genesis 3.15, the son of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. That second Adam who would take our place that we might receive the gift of grace. That's what we just sang of. And that's what God's people, ever since that first gospel promise, have been waiting for. And here in our passage this morning, God announces the arrival of that son, who is not only the son of the woman, but is also the son of David and the son of God. 
this passage before us, God announces the arrival of the long-awaited son, the son of the woman, the son of David, and the son of God. We see in Mary what is to be the response of those who hear this glorious news. Look at me first this morning at the angel's announcement of the birth of a son. It tells us in verse 27, the announcement of this son came to a virgin named Mary, who was betrothed to Joseph, but she had not yet known a man. And yet this angel, the same angel that we saw last week in uh, the announcement to Zechariah, Gabriel, who the only other time we see in Scripture is in Daniel chapters 8 and 9, he's announcing the, the, the dawn of the messianic kingdom, the inbreaking of the messianic times. This same angel now comes to Mary, and she says, or he says, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you, for you have found favor, you have found grace with God, and you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You will call his name Jesus. The the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the the power of the Most High will overshadow you and this child to be born to you will be called Holy, the Son of God. We're we're used to hearing these verses every year as we approach Christmas, but this is unlike anything that has ever happened In the history of the world, if we thought that the conception of John in the womb of barren Elizabeth was astounding, this is a whole different level. Mary has never known a man, and yet the Spirit of God is going to overshadow her so that God creates in her womb a child bypassing the normal reproductive means of a husband and wife in the first person since Adam and Eve to be created by the direct, unmediated action of God himself. This is a new beginning. In fact, the way that Gabriel describes the Holy Spirit as as overshadowing her is reminiscent of that same Holy Spirit in Genesis 1, hovering over the waters to create. We saw a couple weeks ago that one of the the themes in Luke is Christ as a new Adam. We see that in the genealogy that that traces Christ's descent all the way to Adam and then right after that shows us how Christ as a new Adam passes the test that Adam failed in the much tougher garden of his wilderness fasting. He is the second Adam. Adam, of whom we just sang, of whom we sang before the service, son of Adam in the desert, wandered in our curse and woe by the ancient serpent tempted, Christ obeyed where Adam failed. One of the themes in Luke is Christ as a new Adam. The announcement of his birth then is the announcement of that new beginning which is actually what Luke calls it in Luke 1 verse 2. And he he says that throughout this book, he is writing a narrative of the things that have been fulfilled just as those who have done so from the beginning. He's he's here hearkening back to Genesis 1 verse 1, describing what has been accomplished in the coming of Christ as a new beginning. The announcement then of the birth of this son is the promise first made in the beginning, the promise of the son of the woman. 
So there is a long history in the church going back to the ancient church fathers of, of understanding Mary as something of a new Eve. The church father Bede said, as Eve contained in her womb all humanity that was doomed to sin, now Mary contains in her womb the new Adam who will father a new humanity by his grace. Irenaeus, who was known for emphasizing how, how Christ recapitulates all of history, says Mary, by her obedience, reverses, so to speak, the disobedience of Eve so that the first woman's fall by the seduction of an angel is overcome by this woman who believes the word of another angel. Sin and death are, in one sense, introduced through Eve, but as Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, salvation comes through the childbearing. And that somewhat perplexing verse in 1 Timothy 2 where it says that woman will be saved through childbearing. There's actually a definite article there so that it, it says salvation comes through the childbearing, which I take as a reference to the promised birth of Christ. I mean, Eve was promised that salvation would come to the one who would be born of a woman. And Luke is now telling us that that one has come. The announcement of Gabriel is the announcement of the promised son of the woman. The first savior foretold in the garden would come and, and do what Adam failed to do and rule as God's royal son. Remember, Adam was, was God's vice regent. He was supposed to, to rule and, and extend God's dominion beyond the borders of Eden. Serve as a kind of king. Yet he failed. And yet God promised that another would come to rule in his place. Which is why that, that, that first messianic promise in Genesis 3, as it, as it continues to, to take shape throughout the, the rest of the, the unfolding drama of salvation, as that first messianic promise continues to unfold, it has such, such royal overtones. The messianic line begins to narrow to, to Abraham, with whom God makes a covenant in Genesis 12 and 15. But then in Genesis 17, he's told that kings will come from him. This blessing that will come from his line to, to bring salvation to all the nations will be a royal blessing. Um, specifically, as we're told in Genesis 49, for the tribe of Judah. Which as we continue to, to follow the unfolding story of salvation, takes us to David from the family of Jesse in the tribe of Judah, who is told in 2 Samuel 7, I will raise up for you, David, your offspring after you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, and he will be to me a son. And my steadfast love will not depart from him, but his throne and his kingdom will be forever. The son of the woman, first promised in Genesis, will also be the son of David. And Gabriel alludes to that promise very clearly in verse 32, and he says that Mary's son will be given the throne of his father David to reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. He's telling her, your son is going to be that king who rules forever, whose kingdom has no end, who rules as Adam was meant to, and as David and Solomon did for a time. But this one will do so perfectly as foretold in that great promise to David. 
which God's people sing in, in hope in Psalm 89, Psalm 132, the promise of a perfect king who would rule from David's line. Which, by the way, is why verse 27 um, tells us that Mary is betrothed to Joseph, who is of the house of David. Luke is establishing Christ's royal pedigree. He is the promised king, the royal heir to David's throne, the one whose kingdom will have no end. A child born to Mary will not only be the son of the woman promised in the garden, but the son of David too, who will rule forever. His kingdom will have no end. As we sang in Psalm 72, his dominion will be from the river to the ends of the earth, the way that, that uh, Adam in Genesis 2 was supposed to, to extend that rule, that, that blessing from Eden all throughout the ends of the earth. This one, his name will endure forever. His fame will continue as long as the sun. His reign will be universal and his reign will be eternal. Because this son of David and the son of Adam will also be, as Gabriel says in verse 32 and verse 35, the son of God. This king will be Emmanuel, God with us, the second person of the Trinity, God incarnate, who will condescend from heaven to take on human flesh, born of a virgin that he might be like us, truly man, and yet conceived by the Holy Spirit so that he does not take on our sin nature. John Calvin said that's why he's called holy in verse 35. He is set apart by virtue of his unique conceptions that he does not inherit Adam's sin but might be pure and undefiled as would have been true before Adam's fall. And Christ takes on the likeness of man born of a woman, but conceived by the Holy Spirit, he might be sanctified from conception, holy, harmless, and undefiled. He is truly man born of a woman, truly God, son of the Most High, and truly righteous, not only without sin throughout his life, but sanctified by God's Spirit from conception. And all of this is necessary if he would truly be called Jesus, which means God saves. As we confess in Lord's Day 14, if he would save us, he must not only be true and eternal God, able to bear in his divinity the wrath of God for sin, but he must also take to himself the working of the Holy Spirit from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, a true human nature, that he might also be David's true descendant like his brothers in all things, except for sin. By virtue of his perfect divinity, perfect humanity, and perfect righteousness, Christ becomes our mediator who covers with his innocence and perfect holiness our sin in which we were conceived. That's what the son of the woman, son of David and Son of God comes into the world to do, to save his people from their sins as a new Adam who reverse the curse, as we sang earlier, bear our sin and woe and shame. He'll take our place that we might receive the gift of grace, earning for us life as the obedient son and taking our curse by dying our death. This is what Gabriel is announcing 
All of the promises of God are coming to focus and coming to fulfillment. The child will be conceived in Mary's womb. God Almighty, stooping down to save poor sinners stained with the sin of Adam by bearing their curse, though unstained, and taking our place. And some have suggested that this humble condescension that is his mission is actually hinted at in the very setting in which this announcement is made. Notice how Luke contrasts this with what we saw a week ago in the announcement to Zechariah. This announcement, the greater announcement, is not made to a priest like Zechariah in the holy place, in the temple. But it's made to a young girl, probably 12 or 13 years old in this culture, in, in the town of Nazareth, of which it said, can anything good come from Nazareth? She was poor. In, in Luke chapter 2, they can't even afford the lamb at the, the purification offering, but they, they have to settle for two turtle doves, the allowance in Leviticus 12 made for the poor. She's a woman in a, in a culture that discounts them. From a human perspective, she was entirely insignificant. As Phil Reichen has said, her lowly estate was part of God's plan. By choosing Mary, God was beginning to show what humiliation his son would have to endure for the salvation of sinners. He preferred this lowly girl because the plan of salvation required Christ to humble himself only then to be exalted. To rescue us from our sins and lift us to glory, Christ first had to enter into the misery of our lost and fallen condition. So what better way to show what he had come to do than to be born to a girl like Mary from a town like Nazareth? The eternal Son of God condescends to become the Son of the woman and die for sinners that we might be saved. The very humility of his mission is signified in the one to whom he's born. As Kent Hughes has said, a nobody from a nothing town in the middle of nowhere, a teenage girl from Nazareth. And yet this young, poor adolescent is called by the angel God's favored one, the recipient of his grace, given the great honor of bearing in her womb the author of life. And she responds to the angel's announcement, not with the doubting disbelief of Zechariah, but in contrast to that priest in Jerusalem, this lowly maiden in nowhere Nazareth believes God's word and receives by faith the promise that is spoken. And we see that at the end of our, our passage where she says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the way that Luke places this response right, right at the end of this passage is, is placing the emphasis on this response of Mary, showing us this is what he wants to elicit from us through this text, that we too would respond with this kind of faith. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. This is the response of faith that the gospel demands. This is the childlike faith that Christ will demand in Luke 18. The childlike faith that the old priest trained in the scriptures 
struggle to have. Yet it is characteristic of the lowly and the outcasts who Christ comes to save. Unlike the priest of God in Jerusalem, this poor young girl in Nazareth believes God's word. Or as the church fathers liked to put it, unlike Eve, this woman believes God's promise and takes him at his word. And in so doing, she becomes a model disciple showing us this is how we're to respond to the gospel with this kind of faith in God's words. The phrase actually in verse 37, it says, for nothing will be impossible with God. That, that could be translated as it is in the NIV. No word from God will ever fail. That's what Mary affirms in her humble response of faith, where she says, let it be to me according to your word. That same word is used in verse 37 and verse 38. She believes God's word, that the word that he has spoken will not fail. That every word that God has spoken will come to pass. And that which he has promised, he will, as Luke says in 1 verse 1, accomplish or fulfill. And notice, actually, if you you look ahead to to the next passage, um, Elizabeth says the same thing about Mary in verse 45. Blessed is she, Mary, who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken by the Lord. Faith takes God at his word. Even that which he has promised seems impossible. I think of all the examples that we see of this throughout Scripture. I think of of Abraham in Genesis 22, who who after having been given this this unthinkable promise that his barren wife would would bear a son in her old age is then told to take this son and and sacrifice him. In the book of Romans and in Hebrews tells us that Abraham reasoned that God was able to raise him from the dead. Faith takes God at his word, believing that he is able to accomplish that which he has promised, even when it seems impossible. As it seemed impossible for Zechariah in the passage that we looked at last week, even more so here for Mary. Never before in the history of the world had a virgin conceived, but she believed the promise of God, that he was able to do the very thing which he had spoken, as it says in Hebrews 11, create by the word of God so that what is seen is made out of things that are not visible. By faith, the author of Hebrews tells us we believe that God spoke the world into existence, and, and by faith, Mary believed that God could do it again. He could do that same thing in her womb. That may seem implausible, But as J. Gresham Machen has said, while a New Testament without these kinds of miracles might be easier to believe, it would not be worth believing. This is a necessary part of the faith. This is not some little footnote in the Christian faith. There's a reason why we confess it every week in the Apostles' Creed. Virgin birth was necessary. Besides, if God cannot make a virgin conceive... If that's too much for our modern minds, then how is he going to raise Jesus from the dead? 
Mary is here believing in the supernatural power of God in the gospel. And we're called to believe it too. To take God at his word and believe that every word he has spoken will be fulfilled. To take God at his word and believe every promise in his word, even when our sophisticated, rationalistic, modern world around us scoffs at that. Mary is here given as an example of how we respond to even the unthinkable. Believe that every word God has spoken will be fulfilled. And God, in his kindness, he he then also um, strengthens us in that faith by by the assurances that he gives us. We notice in verse 36, Gabriel supplements this gospel promise with a sign to assure Mary that God's word will be accomplished as he, he points Mary to her relative Elizabeth who has conceived a child in her old age. God's word is sufficient, but in his great kindness, he gives a sign. Even as he does with us, or as we confess in our Belgic confession, mindful of our weakness and of the crudeness of our faith, he gives us sacraments to seal his promises in us, to pledge his goodwill and grace toward us, and to nourish and sustain our faith. God does something like that with Mary. Mindful of the fact that in verse 29 she was troubled at the angel's first saying. Cognizant of the fact that in in verse 34 she she was perplexed as, as, as to how this will all be since she is a virgin. Mindful of that, he gives her a sign. By the way, in verse 34... When she asks that, that question, how will this be? This is, this is not a question of doubt like Zechariah's. This question is different. He says in Luke 1.18, how shall I know this? She says, how will this be? He's struggling with whether to believe. She simply wants to know how it will happen. But she does believe. And yet still, in his kindness, God strengthens her faith by giving her a sign. As we need to, in our weakness, in our doubts, and God, in the baptismal font at the table of our Lord, provides in his kindness those very signs that our weak faith so needs. Remember, Luke has told us this is the gospel of knowing for sure, its purpose in Luke 1 verse 4 is to give us assurance or certainty concerning the things that have been fulfilled in Christ. And God shows that concern even in the sign that he gives Mary. He wants her to know that no word from God will ever fail, but the promise he has made about the son of the woman, the son of David, the, the son of God and son of the virgin will come to pass, and she believes it. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Actually, that word servant that she uses, you might um, notice, maybe your, your ESV has a footnote in, in the Greek, that's the word um, doulos, that literally means slave. She's saying, behold, I, I am your slave girl. I am your humble bond servant. Do with me as you will. Because not only was this angelic announcement hard to believe, but in another sense, it was, it was hard to accept. For just think of the suffering 
that this promise entailed. We get a little glimpse of it in Matthew chapter 1, where the man to whom she is betrothed, which in their culture is much more binding and much more official than our modern engagements, considers divorcing her. Betrothal was considered as binding as marriage, and any violation of it was considered adultery. And so Mary's pregnancy would likely have been seen as such, the penalty of which, according to Deuteronomy 22, was death. Or even if that that penalty wasn't carried out, um, she she would most certainly be be deserted and and despised. In fact, some have actually suggested that in um, John chapter 8, in that that exchange where Jesus tells the, the, the Jews that they are, are um, descendants of their father, the devil, who is the father of lies. In the midst of that exchange, they make this sort of odd statement to Jesus in John eight forty one, where, where they say, uh, we were not born of, of sexual immorality. Many commentators have suggested that they may there actually be casting a slur on the suspect circumstances around Christ's own birth. This is the kind of thing that Mary would have had to deal with. Her acceptance of the gospel word had uncomfortable implications. As Phil Riken says, to accept the virgin birth, Mary had to be willing to give up almost everything she knew and loved. She had to be willing to give up Joseph, the man she was engaged to marry. She had to be willing to give up her reputation. Imagine the village gossip at a town like Nazareth where everyone wondered who the father was. There were other trials as well, the, the physical pain that, that went with pregnancy and childbirth, the many hardships that Mary couldn't have predicted, the journey to Bethlehem, the exile in Egypt, the hatred of Herod. But the greatest suffering would come when Jesus grew to be a man and would begin to fulfill his ministry with so much controversy surrounding him that it was obvious he was on a collision course with death. Or Mary would have to watch and endure his arrest and trial and and crucifixion and bloody burial. This is what it meant for her to submit to God's will for her life. And she said, behold, I am the, the servant or slave of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She was consenting to a lifetime of suffering for the glory of God. As Simeon will say in Luke 2, when, when, when Jesus is brought into the temple, even to have her own soul pierced by the things that her son would suffer. Mary not only believes by faith the word of the gospel, but she is willing to suffer for it. It says, behold, I am your handmaid, your slave, teaching us something about the nature of true faith. It's willing to suffer for the cause of the gospel. If the promises Gabriel has made about the son of the woman and son of, the Dave, of David coming into the world are true, then nothing else matters and we must be willing to cast ourselves on that word even if it means the kind of suffering and trials that Mary will undergo. As she teaches us about true faith, she shows us that true faith humbly accepts God's word in both its impossible declarations, like the virgin birth, And also its uncomfortable implications like the suffering that following the man of sorrows entails. You must be willing to take God at his word and trust him even when doing so means suffering. 
And that's what Luke is going to show us throughout the rest of, of Luke and Acts. Remember in, in Acts 1, verse, verses uh, 1 and 2, he, he tells us that the book of Acts is really volume 2 that he started in the book of Luke. He, he writes both to Theophilus, and what he sort of does is he, he patterns the, the experiences of the apostles like Paul and, and Peter after the experience of our Lord Jesus. There's a number of, of parallels as you look at Luke and as you look at Acts. And what he's, what he's doing is, is he's making the point that just as the Son of Man must suffer, so must those who follow him. He's making the point that the kingdom of, of the Son of David in verse 33 is not until after the things that he has suffered. And, and so likewise for us, as he says in Acts 14, 22, it is through many trials and tribulations that we must enter into the kingdom of God. Following the son of the woman, son of David, and the son of God means suffering. Recall we saw that in, in 2 Timothy just a couple of months ago. Paul makes that very clear. But in the midst of our sharing in Christ's suffering, Luke also wants us to know the kingdom of verse 33 is coming. That kingdom will have no end. And Mary can submit herself to a life of suffering because she knows that she is on the conquering side. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of her son, will defend the cause of the poor and, and deliver the needy when they call. As we sang in Psalm 72, his kingdom will have no ends. And so that word given to Mary, though a startling word, becomes her sustaining word, as it does for us. The son of the woman has come, the son of David, the son of God himself, whose name is Jesus, meaning God saves. He is fully God, fully man, and fully righteous. He will save his people from their sin. Born of the Virgin Mary, he will suffer under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead and buried, descend into hell as the second Adam, bearing our curse, but then rise victorious to give us life. It will ascend to the right hand of God where he will rule on the throne of his father David forever as our prince of peace. In a reign of grace for all who will come under his rule the humble posture of this lowly maiden and believe the promise of the gospel. God wants us to respond in faith this morning to the announcement of the Christ who has come. Not to disbelieve God's promise as Eve did, but to take him at his word like Mary, trusting that no word of God will fail. But banking our life on his word. And the same faith and same worshipful meditation that we will see of Mary throughout these opening chapters, wherein in verse 29, she, she seeks to, to discern and, and understand, reflect on what the angel is saying. She'll continue to do that next week in her song in Luke 2.19 and Luke 2.52. She will, she will treasure up all these things concerning Christ in her heart. She is a, a thoughtful, meditative, reflective daughter of God who not only believes God's word, but ponders it and teaches us as we consider this glorious news that Gabriel has proclaimed to let all mortal flesh keep silence and with fear and trembling stand, ponder nothing earthly-minded, for with blessing in his hand, Christ our God to earth descended, our full homage to demand. That's what we consider this morning and the weeks to come 
in the incarnation. So may we believe like Mary. May we ponder just what God has done. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we believe the word that you have spoken. And we thank you that not one word of yours will fail. But that first gospel promise that you made in the garden of the son of the woman who would save us from our sin, you fulfilled. And the son of David and son of God who came to bear our sin and to rule as our prince of peace. Lord, we pray that you would give us the humble faith of Mary to accept the word that you have spoken, to be strengthened in the signs that you give to accompany that word, that more and more like her, you would help us to be willing to count the cost and give our full allegiance, our full homage to your son, even to suffer as we await the full coming of his kingdom. And Father, as we consider that kingdom we consider all that you have done in the incarnation of our Lord. We pray that you would help us, like Mary, to treasure these things in our hearts in worshipful meditation. Pray that even as we sing this song of response, you would uh, give our, our, our hearts by your, your spirit the, the ability to, to treasure up in our hearts that the things that we have heard this morning, you have fulfilled every one of your promises the eternal Son of God condescended to this earth to bring about our salvation. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.